Good afternoon, everybody on Educated Economist here. So the topic of trade deficit seems to be not only in the news, but I've heard other people talking about it as well. So it must be something that's going to be coming up as far as maybe a political debate or something like that. And they're getting the people's minds prepared for it because generally most people probably don't think about the trade deficit. Like, I mean, unless you're like an economist like us on this channel, I mean, we probably think about it. But most people generally, unless you're into economics, don't really think about the trade deficit. So when I hear people bringing it up or talking about it outside of those who are like, you know, like the viewers of the channel or something, then it usually leads me to believe that it must be like something that they want the people to know or something that they want them to to understand or be talking about. I'm almost assuming that it's going to be for political reasons or a political poll or something like that. Anyway. What's driving the trade deficit? A lot of people ask this question, and it's a really simple answer, right? It's luxuries. Luxuries drives the trade deficit. Simple, right? Now, I know a lot of people probably will roll their eyes and shake their head and say, oh, no, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into it, you know, especially when you think about it from the political arena. But ultimately, what it comes down to is the dive into luxuries, as people move into luxurious luxurious items, what ends up happening is, is that the domestic manufacturing can no longer compete with the foreign production. And this is something that is going to happen again and again and again. China is experiencing it right now. The United States experienced it back in the 50s and 60s, moving into the 70s, even today. There's been examples of it going all the way back 200 years ago with Cantillon's essay, talking about the increase and decrease of money to a state and how the increasing of manufacturing and then eventually the manufacturing bringing in new money, that new money driving up the standard of living, people enjoying the luxuries, that enjoyment of luxuries driving the prices up, the foreign production now coming in to compete with the domestic manufacturing, Domestic manufacturing begins to leave. Ever-increasing amounts of foreign production come in until pretty soon all you have is foreign production and all your domestic manufacturing has pretty much left except for only the most highest quality products that foreign competition still hasn't produced better yet. That's really how it goes down. And see, most nations throughout time would have failed, except for the United States, we had the idea, or whatever it was, I don't know if it was necessarily an idea or as much as it was the overall ability to just do it, and therefore we did, and that is to issue debt. Right? The more debt we can issue, the more we can buy foreign production and continue on with our way of life, our luxurious lifestyle. See, you go back to the 50s and 60s when we were a manufacturing powerhouse, and a single income could produce enough money for an entire household. Raise kids, go on vacation, have cars, college funds, retirement. One income, right? But then as we started enjoying the increase in our standard of living, foreign production started coming in. We started buying Toyota cars. Right? Started buying all the cheap Chinese stuff being manufactured, all those electronics, 
right? All the things that were ultimately the best products in the world here in the United States, the world started making just as good. And they were making it cheaper. And we were buying it. So today, we are still sitting in the same position in which we are the buyer. Right? Buyer of most products around the world, everybody wants to send it to the United States. Oh, sure, we got the BRICS nations who are trying to step up and do deals with each other. But ultimately, the United States is the buyer. People are looking at China saying they're going to be the next biggest economy. But yet you're seeing the manufacturing base leaving. And the reason is, is that foreign production outside of China is becoming cheaper. Places like Vietnam and Mexico. So this is really where China is going to be in a position in which, like, like what are they going to do? The United States was in the same position back in the 50s and 60s. But what we decided to do is instead of redistributing all the gold back out there to the rest of the world, is we severed ourselves from the gold standard and started issuing nothing but fiat currency. U.S. Treasury debts. With these U.S. Treasury debts, the people around the world had a safe and liquid asset. The United States started buying a lot of foreign production, pushing their dollars out there for the rest of the world. The rest of the world loved it because then they had something that they could use to do transactions with. It wasn't like, I believe that they would do it by choice, right? I don't think they were like, man, we should have the United States do this. This is a good idea. I don't believe that at all. I think it just happens to be the position in which that the United States had put themselves in being that manufacturing powerhouse and not willing to give up the luxurious lifestyle. Right? So now, I don't know what China plans on doing unless they have a way of issuing out debt like the United States did, like with the U.S. Treasuries. We're going to start seeing China suffer even more. They're going to slow down even more. Right? Until their manufacturing becomes competitive again with places like Vietnam and Mexico. And the whole reason why it's not competitive, they increase their standard of living. <laughs> it's like, once you look at it this way, it's like it's almost impossible to see it any other way. You know why, you know, the economies are failing. It's not, I mean, you can have all the political decisions, out, you know, which will, you know, influence and change the way, you know, things are viewed. It'll change the meaning behind a lot of stuff. But it doesn't change the overall outcome, right? I mean, when you think about, like, some of the reasons why war takes place, war is an economic event, right? This is the result of what happens within the economy. This isn't a political decision. I mean, it is a political decision that does it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously it is. But it wouldn't be taking place if the economy wasn't in the condition it was in. You know? I mean, the, way, the easiest way for me to kind of explain that one is to understand it from, like, even Cantillon's essay, when he explains it from here in the United States prior to any settlement taking place, and it was just the Native Americans, they would fight bloody wars with each other. It was an economic event taking place because there was only so much food the land could provide. And it wasn't enough for all of them. 
And so they fought over hunting grounds. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the, it's, it, it, it's the same thing. Only with technologies and communications and all the things that we have nowadays, which is so modern, it makes it very hard to see, but that's, it's, it's the same thing. It's the same reasons, right? There's just simply not enough resources. So they're gonna take it. Everybody thinks you can live in this kumbaya kind of thing. You know, that's not the truth, right? I mean, it would be great if we could. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the idea of it, but that's not the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is that everything that takes place is an economic event, right? If you just look at it that way. And now I know everybody has to give meaning to, to it in their own fashion, right? And whatever meaning you decide to give it is the one that it's going to be. That's going to be the reality of it, regardless of what anybody on YouTube says. But this is how I kind of see things, you know? I mean, trade deficits is just one of the many economic consequences that are faced from just the reality of the situation. It's not, it's not an accident. It isn't nobody's fault. It isn't anything like that. It's just the nature of it. It's just the natural consequences of how economics work. And when you try to force things to, to have different outcomes than what the economy is going to you know, eventually lay out, then you have things like war. You have things that, you know, famine and poverty and all kinds of stuff from it, right? These are inevitable consequences that come from it. And the easier, it, it, I mean, it's easier to understand things when you just look at it like that. Not like it's somebody's fault, but it's just the way it is, right? Sometimes it's just an abundance for everybody and it doesn't seem like it could ever end. And then other times it just seems like there's nothing available for anybody. Wait, I didn't mean to go off like that. All right, uneducated economist, you guys let me know.